So um, here we are this week. We finished up our sermon series on the Ten Commandments last week. Um, and if you weren't able to catch that or you missed any of those, you can go online at cccbillrucker.org and check out any of those sermons if you want to catch up. But what we're going to be doing for uh, the next few weeks is just doing some standalone sermons on different pieces of scripture before we jump into uh, to a new series over the summer. And so we begin today with this passage from the Gospel of John. And the first thing that John tells us is he sets the scene by saying um, it was the festival of dedication in Jerusalem and that it was winter. And so John's painting a picture for us here. It's a picture really that um, sounds very much like has all the hallmarks of an eyewitness. He was there. He was seeing what was going on. And the festival of dedication, we know better as the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, uh, which means it was most likely probably December when this was going on. And it would have been chilly in Jerusalem in December. And that's why Jesus was walking along what's called Solomon's Colonnade. Um, Solomon's Colonnade, it was was on the uh, east side of the temple, the Jewish temple, and it it was covered by a roof. So it gave some, uh, some protection from the cold weather. And actually, Solomon's Colonnade, it's it's mentioned again in the book of Acts in chapter 5. And it says it was a gathering place for the early believers. So they would hang out here too and worship together. And, um, you know, Jesus, he always always seemed to uh, attract a crowd wherever he went. Um, And, you know, that, that tends to happen when you miraculously heal people and cast out demons and raise people from the dead. It's one of the byproducts. You tend to attract a crowd. And so there are, there are people following Jesus, you know, probably like, there he is, there he is, there's a, the guy, there's a guy who does all these amazing things. And we're told that they gathered around him and they, and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah or the Christ, tell us plainly. So they wanted to know if he was the Messiah, if he was the anointed one who would, who would save Israel and bring them um, to freedom. And, and you know, at first glance, when you, when you look at that, when they say, um, how long will you keep us in suspense? It almost seems like a kind of like a friendly question, doesn't it? You know, it's like they're saying, how, you know, we're, we're dying to know. Come on, tell us. Stop teasing us. If you are the Messiah, come on, just tell us. But actually, the word suspense can just as easily be translated as annoy or provoke. And so I think what was more likely was they were really coming from an angle of saying, how much longer are you going to annoy us? How long are you going to provoke us? If you're the Messiah, tell us. And as usual, and is often the case when Jewish leaders were asking Jesus a question, they weren't asking to try and gain knowledge or enlightenment. They were asking because they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to pull him into a trap so they could go, aha, gotcha. Now Jesus answers and he says to them, he said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me. And so this is interesting because Jesus, up until this point in John's gospel, he has not outrightly said he is the Messiah. He's not publicly declared that. But actually, he did admit it privately. Back in chapter 4, remember the story of the woman at the well? 
And, and the woman said to Jesus, she said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus replies, he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So he did share that information with this woman. But that's a big difference from sharing it publicly. Because in this instance, he was sharing it privately. And on top of that, this was to a, a Samaritan who the Jews hated. And on top of that, it was a Samaritan woman. And back in those days, a woman's testimony did not hold uh, much, uh, much fettle. So there was a totally different scenario to Jesus declaring publicly that he's the Messiah. But when he answered, he said, I did. I did show you that I'm the Messiah. He's saying that he has declared who he is through the works he has done. And not only the works he has done, but what does he say? He says, the works that are done in his Father's name. So what Jesus is saying here is that the works he has done, they've, they've been endorsed by God the Father. They have God's stamp of approval on them. That he's not just doing works by his own hand, but these are the works of the Father. They're, they're endorsed by him. And I want to try and nail home this point by... Holding up this, this is a, a box of some of the finest English tea one can find. Yorkshire gold. It's a very fine cup of tea. As my father would always say, what's the difference between an egg and a cup of tea? You can't beat a good cup of tea. Tea is also the Englishman's answer to every world problem. Okay, natural disaster, let's have a cup of tea. Nuclear strike just launched, let's just have a cup of tea. Cups of tea solve many of the world's problems. But this Yorkshire gold, <clears throat> has, you can't see it from here, but it has a little coat of arms on it. And below it it says, by appointment to his royal highness, the Prince of Wales. That's better known to you guys as Prince Charles. Suppliers of beverages, tailors of Harrogate, North Yorkshire. And what that is, is that's a royal endorsement. Okay, and there are, there are many products in the UK that are by appointment to His Royal Highness or Her Royal Highness to the Queen or some member of the royal family. And what it's saying is that this is a high quality product that has royalty stamp of approval on it. It's like one of the best endorsements you can get. You know you're getting quality if it has the royal uh, stamp on it, so to speak. And this is, exa is exactly what's going on here when Jesus says that he is doing the works of the Father. It's had that royal stamp of approval. But what works is Jesus talking about? Well, so far, up to this point in John's Gospel, we've learned of many amazing miracles or signs, as John calls them, that Jesus has done. Uh, we've read about Jesus changing water into wine, him walking on water, healing a paralytic, restoring a man's sight, healing an official's child remotely, didn't even have to be there to heal them, the feeding of the 5,000. And shortly in the next chapter, we will read how he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that was probably only a partial list of what the people must have seen and experienced Jesus do. And yet despite seeing all these amazing works and miracles, Jesus says, yet you do not believe. And to me, it's a, <clears throat> it's a real reminder that um, there are some people who are so skeptical, they will never believe 
even when it is plainly and obviously in their sight. It always baffles me when I look around at nature and creation, and to me there's so many hallmarks of the Creator's hand and so much design in everything we see. And yet there are many people who say, nope, that's, that's all just, just random. It's baffling to me because it seems so blindingly obvious. But really, Jesus is alluding to the same thing here. He's saying, you've seen all these works I do, and yet you still do not believe. But he goes on, he says, why do they not believe? Jesus says, because you are not my sheep. You are not my sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, when we think of sheep today, it doesn't have a lot of positive connotations if you are called a sheep. Right? If we call somebody a sheep, we sort of tend to think that this mindless uh, follower who doesn't think about anything and just kind of you know, follows, the, follows the crowd. In fact, you know, we call these people sheeple, don't we? Right? They just blindly follow a leader. You know, sheep are not very smart animals. There's a lot of sheep in England, and they, they're not smart. Do you know if they fall on their back with their legs in the air, they're, they're done. They can't actually get themselves back up, you know. But when Jesus calls them sheep, we have to remember the context of this passage. And before the passage we just read, the earlier part of John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about how he is the good shepherd. And in fact, um, <clears throat> if you can, turn to, your, turn to your Bibles to chapter 10. And we're going to just look at verses 1 through 6. So if, that was, if our passage was 871, eight, it's probably going to be about the eight late 60s or something. But chapter 10, Gospel of John, verses 6 through 1. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So we're told right there that Jesus, with this uh, example of the good shepherd and the sheep and the fall, he is using a figure of speech to nail home the point that the sheepfold is really the kingdom of heaven. And that he, Jesus, is the only true way to enter through the gates into the kingdom because he alone is the one true shepherd. And um, actually, this... When you look at this a little more deeply, this, this is just one example, because there are others, of Jesus dispelling the myth and deception that many have fallen for, which is that there are many ways to God and his kingdom. We hear that all the time today, don't we? Oh, well, there's, you know, there's many paths to God. You know, there are many ways to get there. But Jesus here, he's making it pretty clear that any other way is in fact a lie. In fact, he calls them thieves and robbers. And that's because when somebody teaches or a philosophy or an ideology teaches that there are many ways to God, and when people fall for that, in one sense, they're having their salvation stolen. 
It's being robbed of them because they are being led astray by a stranger's voice. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Listen to that again. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. And that's true, isn't it? There are many philosophies and ideas that seem kind of cool. Yeah? And often they will have elements of truth in them, which is why they're so appealing. Because they, parts of them, they're like, wow, that's a good point. That's really true. And so it's, easily, it's easy to be deceived by these. But ultimately, the test proof is that if they deny who Jesus is, God incarnate, the one true Son of God, and they are ultimately a lie and one that leads to death. So to understand the truth, we must be able to hear the voice of the good shepherd. We must be able to hear the voice of Jesus. So Jesus actually, he lays out for us in verse 27, two steps to hearing and understanding the truth. Step one, we are to hear his voice. And step two, we are to follow him. So how do we hear his voice? How do we hear the voice of the Lord? Well, I'd say the first thing you need to do is you need to take the earbuds out of your ears. You know, today, it's more and more common, isn't it, to see people walking around out in public or on the subway, or on the train, or in the airports, or wherever it is, and they have their earbuds in, right, or their Dr. Dre beat headphones on, and they're in a world of their own, aren't they? Trying to create their own soundtrack to their life. Just mindlessly walking along, buried in their own little world. And one of the things this can do is it detaches you from the real world. It detaches you from your fellow human beings. And it keeps you in this fantasy land of your own making. But not only does it it keep you in this fantasy land in your own world, but it's also, it's downright dangerous and kind of stupid. Why is that? Well, because you are leaving yourself vulnerable to attack. You know, in martial arts and self-defense classes, one one of the first things they teach you is to be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of your surroundings at all times. Because if if you are mindlessly walking along with your face buried in your phone and you're listening to your favorite artist through your earbuds, you are completely oblivious to the dangers that might be around you. Somebody walking down the street with earbuds in and buried in the phone, they are a mugger's delight. It's a mugger's dream. If I was a mugger, I'd be looking for just that person who was completely unaware of their surroundings. And that's what muggers do. They are looking for a victim so they can snatch that purse. So they can snatch that wallet. You are a prime target to be robbed and possibly worse. When you fill your life with these things that distract us. And so it is with our spiritual life. We can fill our lives with things that can act like metaphorical earbuds that drown out the voice of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do you realize that? We we can do things in our life 
that um, block, block out the reception of the Holy Spirit. And to hear that voice, we have to remove the earbuds. Take them out, folks. Take the headphones off. Live in the real world. Get out of your own little kingdom and instead start operating in God's kingdom. How do we get rid of, what do those barriers look like? What do those earbuds look like? It can be all kinds of things. It can be what you feed yourself. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you digesting? Remember, junk in, junk out. Who, who, are, you, who, are, you, who are you hanging with? Who are you spending time with? Are the people you spend time with, do they edify and lift you up? Or do they, they take you down the wrong path? Are they a bad influence on you or a good influence on you? Perhaps it's some kind of sin pattern in your life that you, that you constantly can't seem to get rid of. Some repetitive sin in your life that you haven't repented of yet. You know, repenting and renouncing, those are two of the best ways to remove those earbuds from your ears and to open that channel up to God speaking to you, hearing God's voice. But we have to get out of our little kingdom and start operating in God's kingdom. How do we operate in God's kingdom? Well, this is step two. Remember, step one was hear his voice. Step two, we follow him. We hear his voice and we follow him. Have you ever really wondered what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Not, not, just a, not just a believer in Jesus Christ, but a follower. You see, there are plenty of people, I would say, who would say they, they are believers in Jesus. Sure, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God, and I, I believe he rose from the dead. But they're not really following Jesus. They're what we would describe as nominal Christians or cultural Christians. They do it because it's what they've always done. But is this belief in Jesus, is it changing their lives? Is your life different because of that belief? No. A follower is a little different. And another word for a follower is a disciple. Tony Evans, the, uh, the pastor and preacher and author, he said it like this. He said, the problem with many Christians is that they have trusted Jesus for their salvation, but they have not yet made a decision to become a disciple. They have not surrendered their lives in such a way so as to be a committed follower of Jesus. And then he finishes up by saying, the difference between a decision maker and a follower is simply surrender. So to follow Jesus is to surrender all aspects of your life to his rulership and divine authority. Not some not like, well, I'll give you this in my life and you can, have, you can have this, but I'm holding on to this. You can't have that. That's not what following Jesus is about. It's about surrendering everything to him. You know, there's a story about a chicken and a pig. And the chicken and the pig, they're walking down the street and they come to a shop front and there's a sign that says, eggs and bacon desperately needed. And the chicken turns to the pig and says, well, I'll provide the eggs if you provide the bacon. And the pig says, uh-uh. you see, for you, that's just a contribution. For me, that's
What's my life? Jesus is after your life, not just a contribution. He's not asking for a few eggs. Are we in that place where maybe, maybe we'll give some eggs to Jesus? Maybe we'll give him a lot of our eggs. But we're not willing to sacrifice and give all to him. You know, the wonderful thing is, though, that, that when we do, when we hand over our lives to Jesus and say, you know what, you can have it all, Lord. This surrender, it doesn't lead to what we normally think of with surrender, right? It doesn't lead to oppression, captivity, and being taken advantage of. No, instead, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, it leads to life. And in fact, it leads to three gifts that Jesus mentions here in in verse 28. Jesus says, one, I give them eternal life. Two, they will never perish. And three, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's three gifts right there that the Lord offers to us when we surrender our lives to him. So we could say, one, he gives us eternal life, two, a revived life through new birth, and three, eternal security. Now, you may have noticed there, why why did I describe the second gift, which Jesus says as they will never perish, as a revived life through new birth? How did I come to that? Well, here's how I came to it. As I was studying and preparing for this scripture, when I got to the word perish, I went to the thesaurus and I started looking at what are different words for the word perish. But then I went and looked at the antonyms, right? The opposite. What is the opposite meaning of perish? In other words, what does it mean to not perish? And two of the words that stood out to me were revive and to give birth. So when Jesus says we will not perish, He's saying that we instead will be revived, that we will have new life, new birth. Which, of course, is what Jesus is talking about when he says we must be born again. These three gifts, eternal life, revived through new birth, and eternal security, between them, they actually highlight two of our greatest needs as human beings. Those two needs are to have a meaningful life and security. Those are two of our greatest desires and needs in life, aren't they? To have a meaningful life. Don't we all want our lives to count for something? We all want our lives to mean something. Even people who don't believe in God want their lives to count for something. They want to leave a legacy. They want to, as many people say, make a difference in the world. And we all want security. We all want somebody to hold our hand and say, no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. I've got this. A meaningful life and security. Jesus can offer you both. And not only for this lifetime, but for all eternity. You're not going to find it in anything else. I will guarantee you. Our lives, they take on meaning when we place them in the hands of Jesus. And we are eternally secure because being in Jesus' hands means that we are in the hands of the Father. When Jesus says at the end of this passage, the last verse, he says, I and the Father are one. He's letting us know 
that if we are in his hands, we are also in the hands of the Father. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And listen to this. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had any doubts about if you're truly saved? You ever gone there? Have you ever asked that question or wondered, am I, am I, truly, am I truly saved? Have you ever doubted your salvation? I have. It is something I've wrestled and battled with. And actually, a, a pastor once pointed out to me, and I like to point this out to other folks, that he said, if, if you're struggling and grappling with that question and it's worrying you, that's probably a sign that you are saved. Because those who aren't are indifferent. They're not worried about it. They're not even thinking about such things. So I want to encourage you, if you've ever battled with that, you're probably in a good place. And this scripture here, this should be great comfort and security to you. Because we are told that the Father is greater than all. He's greater than all. That no one, no one is able to snatch us out of his hands. And do you know, do you know what that, that term no one means in the Greek? It means no one. I double checked. No one. Who's the snatcher? The snatcher is Satan. He's the one that wants to snatch your soul out from the Father's hands. But guess what? He is powerless to do so. He is powerless to do so. And that here there's, there's a profound, I believe, connection to the cross and to Jesus and to what Jesus said right before he died on the cross. What did Jesus say right before he died on the cross? He said, Father, into your hands... I commend my spirit. Jesus knew that in the hands of the Father, he was safe from the onslaught of Satan and his demonic hordes. And we should know that we are too. Why is this sermon called Safe and Sound? Well, simply because you are safe when you hear the sound of Jesus' voice and follow him and surrender your life to him. And I want to I want to say, folks, if if you're sitting here this morning and maybe you haven't done that, or perhaps you're contributing with your eggs but you haven't surrendered fully, well then I want you to know I believe God God brought you here today by divine appointment. There are no coincidences in God's kingdom. And I think he brought you here today to make that full-on commitment to Jesus Christ. So if you feel that burning desire for meaning and security in your life, I just want to encourage you at the end of the service to come up, get some prayer. Devereaux will be here to pray with you, or I will pray with you. And we can invite Jesus into your life together. Invite him fully so that he can take the reins in your life and bring you that meaning and security where you can be safe and sound. Let's pray. Dear Lord, 
uh, we thank you that you are the good shepherd, Lord, and that we are your sheep. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears up to places where we are not hearing you fully or perhaps we're not hearing you at all, Lord. I ask that you would give us the wisdom and the insight to remove the earbuds that are blocking your voice. Call out to us, Lord. Open our ears. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would truly commit and surrender our lives to you. That's where true meaning is found. I pray you would put that on our hearts this week, Lord, as we, as we go forth. I pray people's hearts would be stirred to come forward at the end of the service to pray together, to ask for more of you, Lord, to give themselves over to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.